I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? If purpose is bigger than pain, then purpose wins. If pain is bigger than purpose, pain wins. So we need to be able to like, be really clear about our purpose. And when it's bigger than you, it matters to you, and it's future-oriented. But when those three elements are clear... Oh, we can do so much more. Dr. Michael Gervais is a high-performance psychologist working in the trenches of high-stake environments with some of the best in the world, training the mindset skills and practices essential to pursuing and revealing one's potential. His clients include world record holders, Olympians, internationally acclaimed artists and musicians, MVPs from every major sport, and Fortune 100 CEOs. For listeners of the What Got You There podcast, Michael and Pete Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, are giving away an all-access pass to their Compete to Create course, valued at $499, where you will learn how to find your best. If you want to be entered into the giveaway, click the link in the show notes. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. So Mike, I need to thank you right off the bat because I think over the last three years, I'm not sure if anyone else has consumed more of my listening attention than you with your podcast. So I, I just need to thank you for that. It's truly shaped uh, my thinking from an athletic standpoint to also how I incorporate that into, into business and life. So thanks for that. It's exciting to talk to you right now. Wow, Sean, thank you for that. Like I'm stoked that you were able to you know, find some purpose and meaning in conversations on finding mastery so that's awesome thank you yeah no definitely one of my most shared podcasts in, in terms of how you're able to just dissect uncover get really deep into the minds of these athletes that's that's what i love because most of the time it's surface conversations with other people on other podcasts but you get to the core of it and that's what i absolutely love i mean it was even funny preparing for today i feel like today was game day i've been prepping all week been visualizing <laughs> yeah, this conversation good. so i'm stoked <laughs> for this one. Oh, good that's fun yeah, yeah you know i i can't I like by trade and training i'm a psychologist and you know, we just have a way of wanting to go a, a layer deeper, a layer deeper, you know, to understand. So uh, those are some of the lenses. But, you know, before we, we dive in, like, congrats on what you're doing. And, you know, I mean, you, you are cranking. 
on your pod as well. So nice work there. No, I know. I appreciate that. I'd love to hit though. You just mentioned getting that layer deeper. And I feel like you're one of those people that just have a unique skill that you're able to get those, those layers deeper. So where did that first start for you? When did you realize you love uncovering greatness and mastery? Mm, well, I, you know, as a kid, um, when I look back, I didn't know it then, but I grew up in Southern California and you know, I didn't really fit here because I was born on a farm in Virginia. And I mean, you want to talk about like a hillbilly way of living. <laughs> and so I know that maybe it's not a popular phrase, but like we just had this beautiful kind of family experience where we're out in the sticks and there was, um, it was really organic. And my parents said, okay, we get, that's enough of that. That was like eight, nine years of my life. And, and they kind of dropped out a little bit. And during the 70s. And then my dad got a job and it pulled him into California. And I was like a fish out of water. And the kids in Southern California were like a little bit faster, a little bit hipper. They knew what cool was. I had no idea what cool was about. And I really didn't quite fit in. So I always had this sense like, um, okay, now I need to figure out how to do this. And when I say this, it's like how to understand people because my dad moved again. So it was like a bang, 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 like middle of sixth grade, middle of eighth grade and middle of ninth grade. No, wait, did I get that right? No, middle of fifth grade, middle of seventh grade and middle of ninth grade. And those are weird times to move a family. And so I had this unsettledness met with um, trying to figure out how to figure out the new social environment. And then it all kind of came together where I fell in love with surfing and surfing is a great sport for a lot of reasons. And I can, I'd love to get into that with you. But one of the things that's relative to this is that if you want to get better at surfing, it's just you in the ocean and it requires an honesty an honesty about courage of going for it when you're scared, because, you know, to get better at anything, we've got to, you know, stay in those spaces that, naturally induce fear to figure out how do we get better in those spaces to be able to grow through it. And it, without some honesty, we end up like, I don't know, looking for tricks and tips and hacks. And there are none as you know, I've, I've, you've probably heard me say that before, but so long story getting a little bit shorter here is that it, it was an honesty of trying to figure out like, who am I trying to become? in these environments that are scary to me. And the early part of those environments were changing schools and trying to figure out the social setting. And the second part that was scary was figuring out, like if I want to get better at this thing that I really love, surfing, I, I gotta step into that space of fear more often and figure out how to get grounded and be still and be present so that I can adjust to the unfolding and unpredictable and unknown. And so it started young, it kind of had this little prickly, uh, intense moment through my surfing phase. And then eventually the, the two of those kind of led me into this discipline of psychology, which I had no intention of going to college like that. It's not part of my family history tradition. I'm the first person to go to college in my family. Um, but I was so curious about like how the mind worked, especially under duress and hostile or rugged environments. 
And it just naturally led me to study the, the greats. And yeah. so that's how that happened. No, no, no. I, I would love to dive deeper on you studying the greats because it, it's so intriguing at such a young age, you identifying that you were going towards the fear where most people run from it. And I'm wondering kind of how that borderless environment, such as action sports with surfing, what drew you to that as opposed to more of a team sports setting? There you go. Okay, so I played soccer young at a young age and it, it was I was pretty good. Like, and I say that with a, you know, like I know what good is now and I didn't know what it was then. But for my age group, I was pretty good. Like always kind of in the top one or two kids on the team. And then I came, when we came to California, I was not. So it's a funny little thing. Like in the back country of Virginia, I was pretty good. And then when I came to a larger city, I was not. And it's because the skills were not refined. But what I didn't like, I, that was fine. That was okay as a kid. But what I didn't like was the way that it felt to be coached. And that's more of a function of like the coach at that time. And, you know, who am I? I'm a young little kid. I can't really figure out what's going on. But I did not like these barking adults saying things to me that I didn't really understand. And looking back, they were speaking to me as an adult, but I was a kid. And I was like, screw this. Like, this is stupid. Like, that. this is this make-believe game of, and world of sport is ridiculous. So that's where I started to find myself being more attracted to um, – consequential environments where if you make a mistake, you know, whether it's BMX or skateboard or motocross or surfing, you fill in the blanks, skiing and snowboarding. If you make a mistake, it's because you made the mistake and in like skating and BMXing, like you'll leave some asphalt. Um, I'm sorry, you'll leave some skin on the asphalt and that real consequence and the pain, the physical pain that goes with it was real was much more attractive to me. And so that's, that's where I started to sort out my head, like uh, perceived risk and real risks, perceived danger and real danger. And I was just more attracted to the things that were more authentic. All those high stakes moments, right? Things are on the line. Yeah. And, you know, that's such a relative term, right? Because high stakes for a 14 year old is very different than a 44 year old often. And, you know, but yes, to your point, that's where the, the beginning origins of like, ooh, I like it when it's on the line. And I like it because I'm not good at it. I was not good at it. I was bad at it. And I needed to work myself through it. Some people are, you know, they have a predisposition to manage stress better than others. And that's a genetic predisposition. Um, and so, like, I didn't have that. And, you know, I think it's pretty cool that those that have it, but it's also not having it has helped me in a lot of ways. So you mentioned the high stakes is relative term, a, a young kid compared to a 45 year old. What was the narrative like in your head, though? Were you making it seem that these were incredibly high stakes at the time? Yeah, it was the and, and that's exactly what. OK, so pull pull back. I want to answer that question, but we zoom way out for just a moment is that when I was studying the greats, what I was talking about was the greats, the scientists in psychology and all of the time tested uh, theories and and approaches um, training approaches like that these great scientists in the laboratories across the planet have been sorting out from a research standpoint how psychology works for humans. And those are the ones I was fascinated by. And so that led me to like in a, a long, a 14 year training to understand like, okay, this is how science and application begin to merge. And 
when we zoomed back in, um, I still didn't know anything from that science stuff. It was, I'm glad I have it, and I couldn't imagine not having it, but I needed to be in the field with people that are um, trying to push into their potential, and I'm talking about people that are truly living in high-stakes environments where if they make a mistake, they die, and I can get into all those stories in a minute um, with you, but when we zoom back in, like to as a young kid, and this is for all of us, is that when we're in a moment where an we perceive something to be dangerous, whether it's to our ego or it's to our life, that the same centers of the brain that are responsible for, for running from you know, saber-toothed tigers are alive at cocktail parties when we're supposed to be having fun, but we're worried about what other people think of us. It's the same fight, flight, freeze, submit mechanisms. So to answer your question, when we're in a moment, whether we're 14 or whatever age we're at, where it feels hostile, it is hostile. And our neurochemistry is, and neuroelectricity and neuromuscular activities are responding to threat, even though we might not have actually taken a step or done anything for our heart rate to pound, for our body to sweat, for our lung uh, cadence to change, for saliva to change, because, you know, like our chemistry and biology is switching on to defend an attacker even though we haven't even seen a real threat, we just perceived it to be one. It's an amazing thing. So when you're in a moment where it feels stressful, it's because your brain thinks it's hostile. And it's an incredible um, and powerful brain mechanism that if we don't rewrite or override uh, our brain natural survival mechanisms through training our mind, the brain will win. And the brain is not designed for an optimization other than survival. So, and and that's a big statement I just made, but I think it it does hold up from uh, at least a theory standpoint. So, so that's why I'm I'm attracted to like how the mind works and how we can optimize and train the mind from a research standpoint, um, all the way through to an innovative approach. I need to pause here for a second on training that neurochemistry, and I'm wondering how we can use this to an advantage. So now, now you have me reliving my childhood here, thinking about certain things I would do when I was in a similar state. So say I was pre- prepping for a big game. I would play that game out at the highest stakes imaginable over and over again. So when the game was on the line with 10 seconds left, I felt like I'd been there for years. Is that something that you can do to help train yourself for those types of environments? Well, there's two approaches to psychology that I've, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify a very beautiful science that is very complicated because it's invisible, but there's two basic approaches. One is in, in the performance and sports psychology. One is mental skills development and the other is self-discovery. And the, the other, the self-discovery is very rich and it's nuanced and it's multifaceted and textured. Mental skills is sets and reps. So what you just described are both. So you describe mental imagery, which is seeing, feeling, tasting, smelling an environment and how you want to respond in a future environment. So it's using your imagination in a skilled way to be able to become familiar with micro choices and how you want to respond. And for those that are going to work in hostile and rugged and high pressured and stressful environments, it's a free look. And a free pass and a free look to test and try using the most powerful computer in the world, our brain and our mind, 
Like, why are we not doing it? And the answer is simple because it's hard and it requires a deep focus. And we are detraining ourselves away from deep focus by multitasking. So our generations, uh, the, the generation before us and our current generation are detraining away from one of the most significant assets we have for human potential and reimagining potential is the imagination uh, process. And it, it is an alarming thing that I'm saying right now because one, it's very hard to do on its own. And two, we're trending away from the skills that allow us to do it. And so, yes, that's a long way to say yes. But you said something actually more interesting to me than the, the sets and reps of you know using mental imagery is you said when I'm preparing for a big game. And so that statement is on the self-discovery side. And that's a psychological framework that you've built to say that, I see games as being big. And I'm not going to suggest that there's one way, a right way or a wrong way to see a future event. But my experience by working across, um, I don't know, I think it's been three summer games, Olympics, multiple world championships, um, you know, two, two Super Bowls, but work with athletes, uh, MVP across every major sport that have done the thing that at the highest level, that there's two ways to look at it. One is that there's no such thing as a big game. There's, there's just another opportunity. And then the other way is like, let's use the Olympics. It's the gnarliest, biggest, most stressful environment in the world. And we got to gear up for that. Now I'm a fan personally, over my experience at working with, with, with so many folks and my approach is that no, 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 the rules are the same. The, the size of the court's the same. The conditions are the same. The competitors are highly skilled, just like you. There is not a sniper, in most cases, in the audience that is going to shoot you if you make a mistake. Like, like it's just another opportunity to express your talent. And there's plenty of folks in the, in the field that would say, uh, that would disagree with me. But if we, if the, if we see the moment as being big, that means that we potentially could be small. And that's a different psychology training mechanism to, to help that individual. If we see the event as another opportunity to express artistically, then that puts me in a driver's seat and it's my responsibility to develop the skills to artistically express, independent of the environment. And I'm much more of a fan of that approach, not only in sport and business, but in life. And so that, so you shared in that simple little phrase about, you know, you doing imagery, both the discovery psychological framework, as well as the mental skills that you're using. No, I, I love the insights and breath you have at this. Could you unpack when, when you're going into a new type of environment, what the framework is that you're going through? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, happy to. What do you mean? Like if I'm going into... Um, a place that I haven't been before or what, what do you mean? Yeah. I mean, let's just use the context. I know you guys work with some of the most powerful organizations on the planet. And, and so you're going to go in and, and, and try to help them. What, what does that look like for you? What's going through your head? Sure. Um, I, I can tell you a, a, maybe a story working with Microsoft and their CEO, Satya Nadella. This is all public. So I'm not sharing something that um, he hasn't already published in his book is my first meeting with Satya. And now mind you, he's good. I think there's like uh, 180, about 180,000 people that report to him. 
And it's one of the most significant high-tech companies on the planet. And this meeting was, I think it was about eight years ago now. And um, he's got this massive, beautiful corner office that is um, wonderful. Like it's just a thoughtful space that he's created. And when you walk into that environment and uh, it's easy to get caught up in like, wow, okay. And then my approach though, um, as often as I can, is like, this is another human, this is two humans working to discover and unlock and reveal um, and uncover something that is important to both people. And so I want to work from a human standpoint as a, as a, a fan of the human experience. The way that, that I approach that opportunity is, and the way I like to do all of them as much as I can is uh, truly beginning with the discovery process. And curiosity is an inoculation for anxiety. And anxiety is one of the constricting emotions for the human experience. It's a literally anxiety can be an anxious experience or it can be a mental disorder. And it's a disordered way of thinking about the future. That's really what anxiety is. So if you, if I, I'll use my experience, if I begin with a, a curiosity and a, a authentic discovery about what could be and what is getting in the way and maybe some of the history that has brought us to that point, then we can begin to unpack and unfold a potential strategy toward the vision of what could be. And I hope that wasn't too nuanced in there, but it's really looking at the vision, the history, the roadblocks and obstacles, and then setting a, um, together setting and mapping through the discovery process, a strategy to move forward. And so that's it, you know, and I, and I know that I'm answering these things in very long ways, but, um, I, I don't know another way to do it, Sean. Like, uh, I feel like there's so many beautiful textured nuances in, um, in, in the human experience that I just want, I want to give you the full experience of it. No, believe me, this is this is absolutely fascinating that you're doing that. So, so I'm appreciative of that. And it, it was funny, I was, I was listening to your live conversation with uh, with Coach Pete Carroll uh, of the Seattle Seahawks, and, and you asked him an interesting question, and it was about his unique talent and his talent for just kind of seeing that flash into someone's potential and then being able to develop that out of them. If I was asking Coach Carroll this question about you, what do you think he'd be saying? Oh, I think, um, I think that he would, gosh, I've never thought about this, Sean. I think that he would say that what, what I bring to the, the challenge or the thing we're trying to sort out is my ability to be deeply focused to really understand the human or the, the, the thing that's happening, whether it's many humans or one human, to really kind of get that, but then bringing this wealth of information across so many different rugged, hostile, high stakes environments across multiple sports and disciplines. So kind of bringing and dragging that along with really good science and then having the deep focus and the humanistic humanity to see and meet the other person and to help them kind of just be and know that they you know have invested in some skills and strategies that everything that they have is 
already inside them and the opportunities to express that. So it's like, it's like bringing, it's, I think it's what I bring to the environment and the ability to deeply focus to connect and reminding people that, um, Hey, you're here. <laughs> like, what are you going to do with it? And it's, uh, I think that that's what he would probably say. Yeah. Across all the conversations I've heard you had every single time you're on the same wavelength, you are so deeply focused on that. I mean, is that more of a trained skill or have you always had that? Which part? Um, deeply just, focused on just being so present and deeply focused in that conversation. Oh yeah, I, uh, I it's a little bit of a hazard sometimes <laughs> when you just said it. I'm like, yeah, that's why I'm late a lot. <laughs> that's why, I like, you know, like because I I really get I get lost in whatever that I'm doing, and I am so fascinated, Sean, by the human experience. It is um, it's complicated now. And there's no shortcuts to becoming the man or the woman that you want to become. There's just good old fashioned investing in, you know, the time tested approaches and principles that uniquely fit you in this time. And so I think it's fascinating. And so it compels me to be fully absorbed. But my mind is actually um, not like I said it earlier about the fear thing and my mind is I've had to condition and train my mind to be present. It's easy to be focused when something is scary. And that might be one of the reasons I like, um, higher risk environments because it just, it forces a, an all in experience because if you're not all in, you know, consequences are like potentially very dangerous. And so I, I really like those environments and I find that same type of stimulation in conversations about complicated ideas and um, multifaceted uh, dimensional human experience uh, pulls me in in that same way. So I think that that's maybe what you're sensing. And then I'll just add one little texture to it is that, you know, I train my ass off to be present. <laughs> like mind, I've been practicing mindfulness for 20 some years and um, it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And it's so wonderful to live in the present moment more often. And I grew up with some anxiety um, as a kid. And so, like, I know the difference. And I really struggled with it in my college years. And so, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of the texture to it. Yeah, no, this is what I appreciate. You, you pull back the curtain and you display that there aren't hacks to this. This is hard, hard work. And I want to get into, into a lot of that. But I'd love to just kind of dive into the central question uh, across your career and trying to find that, that common thread connecting the greatest performers in the world how they use their minds to pursue the boundaries of human potential. So are there these common threads or does it, does it vary? Yeah, there definitely are. And one of those common threads are the ability to be present. So that present deep focus on the task at hand is the place where wisdom is revealed. And in the performance world, it's where high performance is expressed. And so without the ability to string together a deeply focused moment with the next moment and the next moment, without being able to string those together, people, humans, we're not able to express. We're not able to share the thing that we've invested in um, through training. So you can work your tail off and train in a world-class way and then not be able to, as soon as our brain goes, ooh, you know, and feels that kind of you know, within two seconds, adrenal dump from the fight, flight, fear, fear, submit 
what no fight, flight, freeze, and submit mechanism, that that choking experience, and you you know, just as a bad joke, no athletes or performers ever choke on stage or on the pitch because no one's ever eating, you know, when they're performing. I mean, I'm 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 not funny, but that's a that's a really I think important thought is that what does choking mean? It means choking off access to our talent, choking off access to our craft. And so those that are able to, in the face of risk and danger and consequence and pressure, so to speak, are able to be present in that moment and eloquently adjust to the obstacles, the demands, the challenges, those are the ones that are able to excel. And those are the ones that are able to reach wisdom. So that's, I think that that is, and it sounds a bit trite to say something like be present, being present or being deeply focused is the thing. But I think it is the thing. And I'm not going to, I'm not willing yet to stamp it to say it's the only thing because there are sub uh, capabilities that are very important towards that main aim. And I'll also just put an asterisk that some of the most extraordinary thinkers and doers on the planet are struggle with being present in many parts of their life other than the one thing that fully consumes them. So it doesn't mean it's a well-balanced, you know, well-rounded approach, but that is a very difficult skill to be fully present under duress. And it's also difficult to be fully present during boring moments. And I think that those two opportunities are really important for us as we reimagine, you know, what human expression and living is going to be like as we move into the next generation. You were talking a second ago about some of those elite performers and only being able to be really deeply focused on that one thing and they let some other things in their life sacrifice. Can you dive deeper on this? Is this kind of the the dark side of greatness? Yeah, I think that um, I'm not sure we're ready to talk about the dark side. You know, I, I've, I've been fascinated by by years, but I, I don't know. I think that there's something cool and edgy about thinking about the dark side. Um, but if you knew what I knew about people that are pursuing their potential and the consequences that come with it. I mean, they're great consequences. Sometimes it costs life and limb and life and limb of others that we love. And those are a whole different conversation that I'd like to have with you. But the consequences of isolation and, um, you know, not being present or around for our family and the scratching the internal itch of, of, um, Mastery is uh, sometimes I don't wish it on folks, and you know there's a there's a, there's a dark side to it, and I don't know if it has to be that way. You know, it's not it's not like um, it's not like anyone wants that, and I'm I'm certain there's a better way, and it is part of my struggle is to figure out like how do I be the man that I want to be and travel the places internally and externally that I want to travel when some of those places are, you know, only really left for me to travel. And at the same time, I want to be so connected to my family and my loved ones and my intimate relationships 
But knowing that I can only go to some of those places alone, and then hopefully I come back as a better man. And I'm talking about internal places and external places. So it's um, it's complicated. And the dark side is really exploring the places that you know maybe some people won't go, and because it's scary, and some people don't come back. So that that is the dark side. It really is a loneliness. It's a it's a selfishness. And it, in those two spaces, there's an isolation that takes place. Would you be open for talking through how you assess or someone might be able to assess that? Because I know myself, a lot of people, we battle with those exact same questions you just brought up. And I'm wondering if there are certain things or approaches we can do to better, better wrestle with them. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure that I know it well enough to, to speak on it and I think I think it's important just to like the conversation you're, you and I are having, like it's real and it's important. And I also think there's another thing to consider, which is that there's a dark side of not going to <laughs> there's a I mean, that might be a more painful experience for people is to stand in front of an opportunity and turn your back on it. And I've learned that two twofold. One is from some of the most extraordinary adventure athletes in the world is that they would rather, as they report to me, they would rather be on the precipice of a 40 foot spine in the backcountry somewhere and never, no one's ever kind of hit this cornice, whatever, like and I'm thinking about skiing and backcountry stuff. They'd rather get to that precipice and go for it than turn around because they couldn't, they couldn't do it. All that being said is plenty of them turn around. That's what keeps them alive. And that pain of knowing that they didn't have the internal abilities to manage their fear is far greater than going for it and, and potentially you know, breaking something. But the smart ones, they don't like adrenaline. And when they feel too much adrenaline, they know that they're compromised and they can't think clearly and move clearly when that adrenaline is spilling over. A little bit of adrenaline is right, and they're very sensitive instruments. Um, you know, high uh, world-leading performers are very finely tuned instruments for the most part, and so they know how to listen. And and at the same time, it's painful when they know that they haven't done the work to be able to once they have the opportunity to actually go for it. And that's true for not only people in the backcountry; that's true for the rest of us as well that um, have an opportunity in love or. Um, art or business, and we play the game where we don't actually go for it because of pressures from others, because of the fear of, you know, what if it doesn't work out? How will I be perceived? What if I lack this and that and the other? What if I chip in and it doesn't work and I'm out of chips? You know, the money thing. So there's lots of reasons we don't go for it. And the not going for it is also part of the dark side. So how do you really win? <laughs> like not going for it and going for it. Well, it's it's our approach. It's how we don't go or how we do go that is the deeper part of the uh, an individual's experience. Learning from the pain, readjusting, sharing those painful experiences with our trusted others. And um, hopefully in doing that, we create a rising tide for our small community and potentially our larger community. So I don't think I can help you assess it. I can certainly help you assess anxiety and depression, you know, and like those types of clinical disorders. But at the same time, like that internal scratchiness of that unsettledness 
is part of the experience that is just seems to be pervasive for most. No, no, I appreciate you you being open and sharing both the insights and then to the limits of what you feel like you have a clear grasp on right now. You were talking a lot there kind of about, about that pain, and I've heard you talk about purpose better be bigger than the pain. And I would love if you could dive into your story, uh, the paddle boarding to Catalina and the pain you had to face and what the, what that's like when you're going through those moments. Could you set that up for us? Yeah, sure. Um, this was uh, a, a little strike mission that I wanted to have for myself. I grew up surfing and loving the ocean, and it, it has taught me so much. And, you know, for a number of years, I've been traveling a bit too much and super disconnected from um, Mother Nature in the way that I'd like to be. And and so I just set out to uh, to get reconnected. And so there's this strike mission that I, I called you know, I labeled it for me really was project reconnect and it was to reconnect to a, the, the primal activity from native Americans. And I'll explain that in a minute. And it was a way to reconnect to mother nature. And it was a way to reconnect to kind of the, the parts of myself that I was not attending to properly. And so, and I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that there was a scratchiness that I needed to go um, out into mother nature and to meet that was some exhaustion to find. And, um, I wasn't able to find that part by sitting on a pillow or being in conversations with wise men and women. So I just knew I had to get in nature and find some fatigue to, to break down some of these walls. And my mentor after the experience, and I'll tell the experience in a minute, he says, geez, Mike, like, you know, and he's laughing. He's like, you had to go do that to figure out this you know, like, so, so it was, here's the project. It was, um, for years growing up, I was looking at an Island that was uh, off the coast of Southern California called Catalina Island and native Americans used to build their canoes from the Island. And it's about 30 miles uh, across the Pacific. And you got to get through like some really funky currents and shark alley. And like, it's not an easy, uh, layup paddle. I mean, it's the Pacific is wild and it's open and there's real stuff happening out there. But they would build their own canoes on the island and they would travel, you know, without any navigation. They would, and you can't see from your boat, you can't see land. So you had to figure some stuff out. So they would travel from the island to the mainland, pick up food and resources and whatever they needed for their family, and they go back to the island and share. And I've always been inspired by that authentic real commitment um, of, uh, of life to go provide for one's family. And it's one of the reasons I have such a deep appreciation for people who are fighting for freedom. And that's a, that's a complicated conversation for us to have about war and, and the cost of war. But people that are willing to, to put their life in uh, to help others is an incredible, whether it's a fireman, policeman, a woman, uh, all the way into, you know, elite military services that this was the native experience of that. And I wanted to, to get connected. So, um, long, really long story, just cause we have the luxury of time here is that, uh, I set out to stand up paddle across it and, um, it's at 30 miles and I trained my tail off for it. And, um, I, I mean, there's so many things inside of it is that because of weather and conditions, it got moved up a week and I trained for about three, four months for it and it moved up a week. And, uh, it just happened to be on the heels this week that it moved up. I was fine for fitness is I was in five in seven days. I was in five different hotel rooms, 
um, ripping across the country for some work. And then the following week I had, uh, like a, 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 I cleared my calendar so I could recover properly and strike for this, um, stand up paddle. And so I didn't get that week off that week break. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I get in 11 PM the next morning at like, uh, I think it was about 7 AM boat ride over and I'm fried. Like I'm really in trouble, you know, but I'm like, I'm fit. Let's go. My mind is bigger than my, my physiology at this point. And, um, I get, uh, we push off about five in the morning. It's this beautiful kind of crisp morning where the sun is just right. Uh, the, the weather is great. There's a small little current that's taking place. That's pulling me kind of away from destination, but it's mild. And, um, it ended up not being mild uh, towards the end, but at about mile 10, I was like, right on. Okay. This is beautiful. And the first 10 miles was, um, a meditation, uh, a gratitude meditation that I just wanted one stroke at a time and be grateful the entire time. That was kind of the thing that was going to prime me. This was not a notch in the belt. Like, Hey, I did a, you know, only, only 20 people have ever, have ever stood up, stand up paddled across. And I'm, this was no notch on the belt. This is like to reconnect. And so I'm about 10 miles in and I'm like, right. And it was about a four to one ratio, four paddles on the right side to one paddle on the left. And I'm about, uh, I don't know, um, 70% max effort. So I'm working, but it's, it's an okay place. And long story getting a little bit shorter here is that I got to about, uh, mile 20, I've forgotten. I think it was 22 or 26 and everything happened. I got caught, I was doing 3.1 miles an hour into a 3.0 mile hour head current. So for 45 minutes at mile 22 or 26, somewhere in there, I didn't move. I did, I, I just, I couldn't break out of it. And I was at now for these 45 minutes, kind of at the end of the thing, I was at about, well, it sounds ridiculous, but like 98% max effort for 45 minutes straight. And I was just, it was all right-handed uh, paddles at this point. You paddled left, I was moving into the current. And I was just completely bonking. And I was uh, hallucinating, um, mild hallucinations. Um, I, I had like really done a poor job on hydration. I was out of hydration at this point. And so um, it was a moment where where I realized that the pain was great, but this is why I came to get to this moment to see if I, there's, what am I, what's this other thing that I'm not being able to examine and feel in my life? And so it all happened. And um, it dropped to my knees, which now I'm riding the current away from the destination. And um, there was a trail boat behind me and the captain uh, in the trail boat, like saw what was happening. And he was about, I don't know, three football distances behind me the whole time to, uh, to provide that, uh, alone experience. But just in case there's a shark, you know, it's a good to have a trail boat. And so he screams at the top of his lungs, stand up. And I don't move. And he says again, stand up. It's like, Holy shit. I can stand up. I can stand up. And so I stood up and he says, Put your paddle in the water. I was like, fucking right, let's go. And I just put one paddle in the water. He says, again. I was like, yeah, I can do one more. And so, like, you didn't need to keep screaming because I just, you know, I just, okay, I can do one more. I can do one more. So the insight afterwards 
I get to the, I, I forgot to mention this part is that a couple days before, um, my, my team helped me put together a, um, uh, like the, they were going to capture it on film and we raised uh, just under a hundred thousand dollars in like three weeks time to give money back to the ocean to support, uh, the, the scraping the, the ocean for plastics. And I was like, you know what? I got people counting on me. Yes. I wanted to experience this place and, um, my wife and family were on the beach and the whole thing. Right. And so as I'm kind of pulling through this place and I realized that pain is real, but purpose, if, if purpose is bigger than pain, then purpose wins. If pain is bigger than purpose, pain wins. So we need to be able to like be really clear about our purpose. And when it's bigger than you, it matters to you and it's future oriented. Now we are, and that's just good science. I didn't make that up. That's um, research based. But when those three elements are clear, oh, we can do so much more. And so that's kind of one layer of it. The second layer of it is that um, uh, I realized like the thing that I hadn't been able to examine was this, these feelings of loneliness and what it feels like to be really alone. And so um, that was an important experience that I'll hold private um, you know, to, for myself and for my, my, my intimate family. But that was a really important breakthrough for me. And then the third piece was that um, now that I had the insights, what do I do with them? So then, then and I, I want to explain how insights happen in a minute, then it, it is actually like practicing the thing that I understood. And that is when it's real and you have the real origin story, if you will, the practice becomes so much easier. And if you just make it up and you're reading a, a book of wisdom or somebody else's ideas, but haven't put yourself in the condition to understand where those origin ideas and insights and, and gems of wisdom come from, then you're practicing something that is not going to hold up. It's not true enough. It's somebody else's good idea. And so this is where in, in our modern times right now, we're, we're, littered and cluttered with people that are talking about um, understanding the inner experience. And there's lots of life coaching stuff happening. And I'm sorry for offending people, but like we need to live it and really authentically come from a place that has both good science and real experience and to help others have that same, not necessarily the good science. We can share the good science with people, but have the real experiences so that they can authentically live according to their truth and then to have the mental skills to be able to back themselves up in moments of duress. And um, now if we get all that stuff right, human potential is expressed and revealed. And if people are willing to go the distance on the work and to stay in the, in the conditions of struggle and to figure stuff out, man, we got something. And those are the people I want to be around. So is that the end insight? that you need to live it and, and, and that, that's what it is? No, um, that, that is certainly one of them. The, the other insights are that about the importance of purpose and that purpose not just being somebody else's ideas, but it being authentic and real for you. And the third is that uh, we need to move through difficult times 
and to stay in it. Those difficult moments are really important and nobody does it alone. And loneliness is a real part of the experience. So understanding both loneliness and um, that no one does it alone. Like in that moment, my coach was there. Um, in that moment, my family was on the beach, you know, even though they weren't on the surfboard or the stand-up paddleboard with me. So there's that, that, um, uh, that handshake, you know, that invisible handshake between um, coming into the world um, from our first moments from somebody by our, and then, then we're eventually by ourselves, and then leaving the world hopefully with relationships uh, that matter. But ultimately, we travel the world in our own experience by ourselves with others. And so holding those two tender experiences together, I think, are, are really powerful and important. And nobody can do the work for you, and you're not alone. Yeah, you talk about traveling with those others. And in the past few minutes, you've mentioned both a coach and a mentor how long have you been working with someone and how important do you think that is? Uh, did I, I didn't say coach, men, as mentor. He's been, he's been with me for, um, did I say coach? So think, about uh, eight minutes ago, you said mentor and then just a minute ago it was coach. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have said coach. Sorry about that. Um, thank you. Uh, the mentor, I, maybe I said captain on the boat. I don't know. I can't remember. But um, the the, my mentor, I, I met, it just happened to be super fortunate. I met him when I was 15, and um, he was a really important um, part of my, my younger years. And I just have been fortunate enough. He's a man of wisdom, and I've been fortunate enough to uh, have a trusted relationship with, like, he really gets me, and he's afforded me such incredible care throughout the years that uh, he's been an incredible asset in in my life. And I, I can't begin to repay him. And I just say, <laughs> again, what's up, Gary de Blasio? Thank you for everything. No, it's, a, it's amazing when we have those people in our lives. And it seems like you're incredibly fortunate that at such a young age, you were able to to get someone like that. So it's, it's always cool hearing kind of the, the behind the scenes story there. But I almost want to get back slightly into into elite performers. And we were talking a lot just about the commonalities. And I'm wondering, are there certain personalities or things of that nature that just seem to keep coming up across these high performers? Personalities. Um, yeah, no, there is not one, you know, personality. Personality is an interesting word because there's so many. A personality is basically the unique way of expressing a person's ideas. You know, like that's what a personality is. And as many people as there are, there are personalities. So there's not a unique personality. There are a cluster of traits, though, that we see. And some of those traits are, um, I, I called it like an internal scratchiness before. And a, a more technical term for that would be uh, anxiety. And so there's an anxiousness, <laughs> and there's an OCD, and there's a narcissistic approach, and there's a, you know, there's like these tendencies that are um, potentially maladaptive in many environments, but because of the world that they're entering in is so competitive and is so hyper, um, um, so charged that those, those traits actually work well to facilitate the work required to express potential. And so I, I would say like, Anxiety, narcissism, OCD, perfectionism, um, you know, those are kind of some of the things that we see often for people. And those that uh, are able to damp those down in a healthy way 
and at the same time be a community member to lift others up, you get this really cool blend. Um, and the, 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 again, those are some of the folks that uh, I enjoy being around. Yeah, my apologies if, if I'm butchering any type of verbiage here or language uh, no, 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 no. Uh, around the specifics. So do you see some of these elite people taking things such as Myers-Briggs or anything like that, that, that you've helped kind of decode some of the behind the scenes? Uh, Myers-Briggs, I, you know, I studied it in graduate school and I, I was really fascinated and am fascinated by the insights of Carl Jung, who was the, you know, the original a paradigm opening of, of Myers-Briggs, but, and then Myers and Briggs created the assessment that you're referring to. But Carl Jung's idea was that we have uh, tendencies and we have preferences. And so Myers-Briggs, um, on, you know, on the shoulders of Carl Jung's idea is that we're born with these natural preferences. Do I, do I prefer to be introverted or do I prefer to be more extroverted? And um, there's, uh, let's just say introversion, extroversion. It's not clear, you know, for world leading performers or world class performers, um, introversion, extroversion is not a defining characteristic. Gotcha. No, thanks for, for uncovering that a little bit. Something that just, I'm always fascinated by. So it's interesting hearing that. But another one of the things I'm most fascinated by is, is confidence. And it just seems to be something that continues to come up uh, both in personal conversations and then a lot on this. Could, could we just dive into, into confidence as a whole and how you tackle that? Yeah, I think um, it's like it's been said to be one of the cornerstones for great performance. And it's a really important skill. And it sits on the shoulders of self-efficacy, self-esteem. You know, it sits on the shoulders of some other really important concepts. But confidence is essentially... I think I can do that over there. That thing over there, I th- I'm pretty sure I could do that. I might be able to get that done now. Like that's what confidence is. It's not, oh, I can do that. That's arrogance, <laughs> right? And so confidence is this sense that you have, you you believe you have what it takes to do something. Um, and if you believe, and, and if that thought something is challenging, there's a humility that comes with the confidence. And so hubrism and arrogance are very different, but confidence is this state. It's, it's transient means that, um, it's not an enduring trait. It requires an appraisal of your skills matched with the, um, perceived conditions, right? So let's make it more concrete. Like, let's say you're going to play some hoops or you're going to walk into a boardroom. I don't know which one do you want to, which one do you want to entertain a boardroom or playing some basketball? Let's go with hoops here. And so if, you know, you've got your ball in your hip and you're walking into a new place that, you know, you're going to play some pickup or um, it's a new league or whatever, let's just go pickup. And you got your ball in your hip, you're walking in with one of your buddies and it's a gym you've never been into and you've heard that it's really good games there. And as you're walking in, um, you're going to take a look at the environment. You're going to see how people are playing. And let's say that, you know, um, you're five foot ten, just a basic height, and you've got good handles and good skill. And you look up and you're like, whew, everything's above the rim here. You know, and like, wow, look at that dude. He's got massive handles. Like, oh my God, he's like significantly faster than me. And, oh, geez, look at this. Like, oh, this is a semi pro league. Oh, <laughs> oh, and actually, it's a summer league where there's like four guys from the NFL or NBA playing. So then let's say you take that in. 
and they are they are more skilled than you are. So what do you do in that environment? Do, should you not have confidence or should you have confidence? They're better. I feel like I, I try to approach it with, with some confidence. And then how would you do that? Uh, I'd probably build on past successes I've had in, in circumstances where I might have been perceived as the underdog and maybe pull from those learnings and then apply that there. There you go. So if we, if, so the applying it there is the important part. So you, we have this history behind us of things that we've done well and not well or whatever. And then we're, if we just use that to match what we're watching. So if we're using past success and then matching it against the, or the word is the appraisal, matching it against the environment we're walking into, we're probably going to get in, in trouble because it, it is, our past success doesn't necessarily mean we have what it takes to deal with this, but it gives us a good base. So you're, you're right on the money when you said, I'd apply that. The application of your history with the event that's about to take place is self-talk. That's the application. So then our self-talk is 100% under our control. And if we want to be confident, then we start talking to ourselves in ways that build, um, build confidence. So we say things like, Okay, real challenge. I'm going to bring it. Let me see what I got. Okay, I love this shit. Let's figure it out now. Okay, what's my good stuff? My good stuff is like, bang, 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 fill in the blanks. Okay, my commitment to myself is to bring my good stuff and to learn and be a competitor out here. Let's just go get scrappy and be competitive and have a great freaking time. That kind of stuff builds. But if we're in trouble with our ego or we're in trouble with our self-talk, that's what constricts confidence. So what I mean by, by our ego, if we believe that what we do is who we are and we're about to go into an environment where we're not going to be very good potentially, then it's a threat to who we are. That's going to screw people up now. And so that's why we got to figure out like how do we deal with um, decoupling who we are from what we do. And that is a very powerful exercise to decouple what we do from who we are. I'm wondering who comes to mind for you that is just great at embracing those changing environments. Um, boy, the list is long. Who would be fun to talk about? Um, okay, so we're heading into the Summer Olympics, and I've been fortunate enough to spend time with, and this is all public as well, uh, Carrie Walsh Jennings over the last handful of Olympics, and. She is the most celebrated beach volleyball female be, be, female beach <laughs> female beach volleyball player on the planet, and um, I'll tell you what, talk about a dynamic competitor, um, relentless pursuit to bringing her best on a day in and day out basis across any condition, any national anthem that's being played, she's bringing it, and. Um, she has decoupled who she is from what she does and found incredible freedom there. And it's like the, the, um, the US teams are not selected yet for uh, beach volleyball. And so it's a, it's a race right to the end. And making it out of US in a significant sport, not significant, in a um, sophisticated sport in the US, like swimming or volleyball or track and field, it's hard. Trials in America, in the United States, are really hard. 
And there's sometimes greater pressure to get through trials than actually at the games because our third place team that we don't get to take, we take first and second, our third place team potentially could win a medal as well. And so, um, in some sports. And so I, I say all that because I, you know, we're, we're coming up in, into the selection phase into for beach volleyball. And I just, I'm so excited for her and her team. Yeah, no, you, you've done some remarkable conversations into the insights there. So I'll have to link those up. And I, I know our time's coming to an end. And this is tough because this is one of those conversations I, I honestly could have for just 12 hours straight. But but a few more things along some of the people uh, that you're fascinated by or who have worked with. So there, if there's an athlete you've never worked with, they could be retired, that you just wish you had the opportunity to be with for a season, who would that be? Um. There's so many. Like, let's let's do track and field for just a minute because it's top of mind. Um, Usain Bolt would be fascinating to spend a little bit of time with. You know, uh, world class. Like, understanding kind of what he what marginal gains he was working on and how he was approaching that. That I mean, that'd be fun. Um, I think uh, Ali would have been. Um, you know, Pele would have been and. Um, um, who else, who else comes to mind? You know, the, I don't know. Those are three that just kind of jump out at me right now. Um, that would be absolutely a joy to, to understand their process. So, so think about things that just kind of jump out to you. I mean, you are, I know you'll probably be humble, but you're, you're one of the world's leading experts here. So what's obvious to you that just isn't <laughs> obvious to most? Oh gosh, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, what's obvious to me is that, uh, you know, Humanity is amazing. The human experience is amazing and it's complicated and it's rich. And, you know, I think, I think most people would say that I just get super, like, I, I get crazy almost like when people are talking about like the tricks and the tips. And I, if you do, I apologize, but I just got to tell you, like, there are none. And that's my experience, you know? And so I don't know if you're down that path or not, but. Oh, absolutely like, not. No, <laughs> yeah, like that, that, that part. And then, but it's also not, um, it's not unattainable. It's like, you know, there's some very concrete things that we can do that just take time and effort, just like physical training takes time and effort. So does mental, um, you know, training and mindfulness is incredible. And the science is catching up. What's been around for a tradition for 2,600 years across all 11 world religions. You know, that's a fascinating thought. And, um, so anyways, I don't know, I don't know what, what I really uniquely understand that others don't, but, um, I, that's one right now that keeps coming up as the ticks of ticks, the trips, the ticks, the hacks, um, all that stuff. And the other is like the importance of recovery. I think that we're doing a good job of, um, making sure that that's important, you know, as part of conversations globally, uh, the hustle hard mentality is, um, uh, kind of silly. It's a prerequisite. Um, so I, I don't really get that part. Um, what else, you know, that, that high performance is not the end game. Um, that there's something after quote unquote elite performance that is, um, more significant. And so, uh, that's something that I've been paying a lot of attention to lately. And so it's an important marker to understand, uh, how we're going to reimagine and re understand what it means to be a thriving human into our next generations. Um, so it's an important subgroup of people to understand, but uh, it's not the end all be all. And if we use it as a transactional thing, you know, for more 
a, a cleverly cloaked veil of uh, wanting to be famous, recognized, make more money, it's really gross. And that's me being critical. <laughs> and, um, you know, so that I, I get concerned about that a little bit uh, too. But uh, those, those, I don't know. I, I, those are some things that I think about a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you can be critical here because your breadth of knowledge, and that's kind of my final part here, is I know you're a voracious searcher for knowledge. So have there been books or anything that's captured your attention uh, that you like to bring up? Um, yeah, I, I mean, anything that's held true to the ages, yeah, I'm a fan of. And that doesn't mean that I don't like the, um, can you hear my dog? Yeah, we're dog, we're dog friendly here. <laughs> cool. Um, uh, it does not mean that uh, there's not great books that are out right now, but I'm really fascinated by the, the experiences that have been uh, tested, you know, the wisdoms that have been tested. So those, you know, I mean, go back any any of the 11 world religion um, writings, there's some really epic stuff in, in, that, in, in those writings. And whether you take it from a science perspective or um, a spiritual perspective, those are some incredible books. Um, so I start with those, some of the greats, and then um, some of the really epic writings and literature, uh, they come up um, as well. So I don't know. Uh, I'm not being very specific, but I'm just maybe reminding myself and folks to go back to things that have been tested and have stood the ages of time, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And uh, there's incredible um, works of artistry in those works. Yeah, no, that framework is so much more important than a specific title. So, so I appreciate you lending that insight. But uh, this is this has truly been an absolute pleasure for me, a, a true honor to talk with you and, and get some insights here. Anywhere else you want the listeners staying connected with you, checking out? Yeah, cool. Sean, thank you for giving me the space to um, play in this conversation. And, you know, um, I really appreciate it. You know, so what I appreciated was the questions were on point and um, also the space that you provided for me to just kind of get lost in thought a little bit. So thank you for providing that, this experience. And yes, um, there's a couple places that I would love, uh, if folks are into it to go check out one is on social is always easy. So at Michael Gervais and that's G E R V A I S. And that's for Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Those are kind of the main channels. And, um, also the podcast finding mastery. And you can find that on all players, including findingmastery.net. And if you um, are interested in actually doing the work, like training the, your mind, um, Coach Carol and I built a eight-week online course. Coach Carol is the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And we built an eight-week online course, and that's called Compete to Create, and it's found on competetocreate.net. And uh, I'm super excited about it. I think it's great. And we're just getting our, our wheels turning on that. So, yeah, Finding Mastery, Compete to Create, and on social, Michael Gervais. Yeah, guys, and I cannot recommend all of those enough. Like I mentioned, uh, Dr. Gervais has captivated me the past few years, and he works with the most elite performers in the world. So, Dr. Michael Gervais, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Hey, and why don't we do something fun? Why, why don't we, like, do something fun for your, your community and um, – you know, do a little raffle, you know, maybe send an email to whatever email you want and, and I'll, I'll share an email and, um, let's give away, uh, the course it's $500, um, you know, for the course and I'm happy to give one away and it's a good little thing that, uh, if we can 
capture your email and your interest and maybe we can include you in our communities as well. So um, I'm happy to do that. Fantastic. I'll have that linked up. We'll build a, a landing page for that and uh, we'll set it up with the email at info at whatgotyouthere.com. So that's awesome, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, for sure. Okay. All the best. Cool. Thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.